Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Joining the Dots. Joining the Dots is the podcast from the makers of Huck Magazine, where we sit down in conversation with people creating culture in their own image. We sit down with the writers, the artists, the makers and the doers, and the activists striking out and paddling against the flow. I'm Mike Fordham, one of the founding editors of Huck, and in this episode I sit down with London-based writer Gabriel Krauser. We meet as Gabriel's first novel, Who They Was, is a couple of weeks away from publication and poised and waiting for the world on the Booker Prize long list. Sitting down in the South Kilburn block that is the centre of the world the book evokes, it's clear right away that Gabriel has created art from the hard-edged building blocks of reality. Who They Was is a searingly truthful dispatch in novel form from a seldom heard corner of the culture. A dark poem from the ends of London that have been misunderstood and demonised by the mainstream for so long. And though the subject matter is challenging and the truths it reveals often difficult to digest, the piece is shot through with insight rendered beautifully by the language the author uses and his refusal to sugar the bitter pill of reality with platitudes. The book's got such raw energy and... You know, it's a, it's a cliche word, it's authenticity, and we t- touched yeah. upon that a little while ago before we started rolling. But I know how difficult it is to write those sort of stories mm. with that sort of intensity and that amount of stuff as well, because it's a big book, right? It's yeah. not just a flash in the pan, it's, it's an intense and sustained piece of work. One of the things that amazes me that it, it's published at all in, with the, the kind of way that you've got it published. Mm. How did that happen, man? So it's funny that you say that because I remember when I first sent it out to agents and I got a lot of good responses from literary agents um, and then I went to meet a very high profile, very well respected agent and we had a great conversation and she was loving it and like it was proper banging and everything and I thought like, yeah, this is, I, I thought basically, yeah, this is going to be the person in it and then at the end of our conversation, she said, so how much of it is true? And I was like, all of it. And as soon as I said all of it, like she started backing out and she was like, oh, what happens if you get arrested for it? And I was like, I'm not going to get arrested for it because I know the way that I've written it is protecting people and protecting, my, protecting myself in it. And I know just how that aspect of things works. But she was like, you know, what happens if you go to prison? And I kind of jokingly said, it's like, oh, so right, I'll just write another book while I'm in prison, in it. Like, obviously, I don't want to, in it. But, um, but yeah, so she kind of backed out and... As when I did get my agent, who's an amazing, like quite a fearless agent, Joe Unwin, like obviously I worked a little bit more with her on making sure that I covered every angle of A, protecting myself and people in the book legally, and B, fictionalizing just enough of it so that it becomes identifiably a novel and a work of literature as opposed to just a non fiction memoir in it. And I think. I think, per, I, mean, I mean, that's what I wanted personally. I want to be recognised as a writer. I want to be recognised from the context of literature. In it. I don't want to be recognised as just like a true... I don't want to be recognised as a true crime writer. True crime for, for this kind of book is, is too... What's it called? It's too limited, basically, in it. Like, it doesn't give it the breadth of what it's trying to express because it's not just about an experience. It's not just about my experience. It's also about, like, you know, challenging people in terms of morality and like the, the different worlds that exist alongside each other within one city and 
it's you know for for that to basically be something that impacts everyone it has to exist within the context of a work of literature rather than true crime you know me guessing about i did this i did that you mentioned that of different worlds that's the thing that really comes across and something that really uh recognizes the truth and it's something that i've been thinking about for a long time and no one i don't think has captured that uh and it's it's this sense that within any with this this culture that we've created here in this country and all over the world not just mm. not just in this country there are communities and cultures that are forced to back into a corner into their their corners of culture and to create this world that the mainstream knows nothing about yeah. and when they get little glimpses of it they fear it right? yeah. uh, and so obviously with your experience coming from one of those cultures and actually stepping through your university career for example into those other worlds mm. you're well placed to evoke that right tell me about those other worlds a bit well the thing is is like so a lot of people see me having done uni while also being involved in like criminal life and that they see it as you were living a double life like somebody said that to me the other day and it's like I wasn't living a double life I was just being myself in it like as in I wanted to go to uni I wanted to study English literature but I also wanted to be involved in what I was involved in in it and like with my friends in it doing moves and just, just being involved in crime in it it's like both of those things were as much a, a they were just as much a part of me as each other in it like so to me it wasn't that I was straddling two different worlds the one thing though that I was aware of was that when I'd step into the university world so to speak quote unquote in it like I'd be highly aware basically of how a lot of the people in that environment had no clue about the reality of certain places in London where it's like you know there's there's a chapter in the book that I write about in it where one guy from South Kilburn got killed in a rave and it got shot in the head and that and it's like the next day or what the day after that or something I think it was a Sunday morning in it so like the day after that on Monday I went to uni in it and I'm like jamming in uni and it's like there's no one there that that is like coming in being like oh, did you hear my man got shot in the head and killed and like those are normal conversations like in my context of friends just like now like today you've come here to interview me in it at 20 minutes past midnight this morning someone was shot and killed literally just down the road in South Kilburn in it and everyone here like knows about it we've already heard about it and we're talking about it and everything but literally just take a bus ride 20 minutes away from here to another area and no one's aware of that it's not going to make it into any mainstream paper it might make it into like the Kilburn Times or something in it and I think London in particular and there are other cities like for example Paris where there are these worlds within one city and they are literal worlds they're literally different realities in it and some people can maneuver in between them some people step out of them some people stay confined to their own world always in it and there's also that strange aspect not just about people fearing those other realities there's also this strange aspect of people almost not believing them so somebody from a really wealthy or comfortable background in london who doesn't ever get confronted with that reality beyond maybe hearing something now and again in the news about knife crime or whatever in it those kind of cliched things in it they won't believe the extremity of some of the things that go on basically because yeah. uh, they're just not aware of it it's just not something they encounter isn't it? so when you're sitting down and right is it a mission to actually wake people up out of this out of that wake people up to these realities mm. or is it just a consequence of the actual the art yeah I think it's a consequence of the art I mean what I'm concerned with the most in terms of my writing is the truth and portraying the truth and portraying the reality and one of the things that was like quite difficult in my writing process was I'm writing the book from the perspective of when I was largely, because the majority of the book is between the age of 18 and about 23, right? So I have to write in the voice because it's my voice and it's me telling the narrative in real, almost in real time. I have to write with the same perspectives, opinions and voice of me when I was 18 to 23. I've changed a lot since then as a person, innit? Like, I'm much more empathetic, I'm less callous, I'm less... I'm, like my mind frame isn't in that same world in it luckily when all this shit was happening that's described in the book I would obsessively write notes on phones on pieces of paper when I was in prison like all over the backs of my probation reports I'd write in detailed detailed accounts of what was happening almost in real time in it when I'd have a mad conversation with someone I'd quickly write it down in my notes because I always had this thing that one day I'm going to write about uh, a book about this but 
to preserve all those details because it's the details as well that convey the depth of reality to preserve it it was like i have to write these conversations down as they happen otherwise when i'd sit down to write this book i'll have to invent loads of conversations i'll have to invent lots of scenarios that fill in the dramatic moments which are more easy to remember because we always remember dramatic moments in our lives isn't it so in that sense it was like i had to and the one thing is it's like i'm much more objective in my understanding of things now than i was back then and one thing i had to keep reminding myself when writing the story is don't don't get too objective don't don't apply the perspectives that you have now to this book otherwise you'll lose that authenticity of the 18 to 24 year old basically that was then in it. and some of the notes when i'd read some of my notes like from that time and my opinions i'd be like bro like this is mad like i can't believe i ever used to think like this in it but that's really important to like because also there's that other aspect of when people talk about knife crime people talk about kids and gangs and they're like you know why are there all these problems and it's like separate from analyzing social and political issues for why there are these problems it's like you don't even know the mentalities of some of these kids like you don't even know the mentalities of an 18 year old who's decided that if he sees his enemy he's going to stab him in it it's like you like to understand that mentality is a whole different thing to like analyzing whether a youth club closed down or something it's not that mm. simplistic in it mm. there's a whole like array of reasons yeah. for why you can have that mentality and how certain people can have that mentality yeah. you know so you when you were you know 18 24 and all that did you have a vision when you're writing these notes you're going to create art out of this yeah i was like i always said i'm going to write a book and funnily enough like when the when the long list got announced and a lot of my friends like old friends who used to live in south kilburn like who i used to roll with in west london and northwest london they were phoning me up and all of them literally were saying i remember you kept saying you're gonna write a book one day you're gonna write a book about this one day and you did it and they were like bare pleased for me and everything you know and that that to me was like very significant because it's like i mean i remember in my head being like one day i'm gonna write a book but for all my boys to be saying that it was like shit so i was proper telling people as well at the time one day i'm gonna write a book in it like they all remembered it basically in it so yeah but a lot of people say that and you went and done it yeah 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 but i always <laughs> wanted to be a writer like from when i was 13 years old i had it in my head that i want to be a writer and because i'm from a, an artistic family like both my parents are artists and that it wasn't difficult to say to them i'm gonna be a writer they're not gonna tell me go and get a proper job in it because they're artists so it's like they get it in it whereas if my dad was like, I don't know, like a lawyer or some shit, or he was, you know, some businessman or something, he'd probably be like, you need a proper job first or something. Yeah. You know? So tell us about that background a bit more then. Uh, you mentioned it, you know, a uh, uh, Polish father? Yeah, Polish parents. Yeah, yeah. Both, yeah. both Polish. My parents met in the Warsaw um, Academy of Fine Art. Mm -hmm. And they basically left the country when... I mean, communism, so right after the Second World War, the Russians imposed the communist regime upon Poland, didn't it? And Poland was completely devastated by the Second World War, like much more than a lot of other European countries, in it? So it, it, didn't, it didn't recover properly, and it had this communist regime in place, which was mad oppressive, especially in terms of artistic expression to people like my parents, in it? And it was different to kind of some other countries, or Russia, for example, where it was much more hardcore, it was in Poland, there was a lot of like weird abstract stuff from what my parents have told me in it, like things, for example, like shops being open and saying that they're, they're, what's it called, they're open for business and everything, but you'd go into a shop and there's no products on the shelves, but they're like, we're open for business in it, like weird things like that in it. So they basically um, left the country um, in the late 70s, and I think first they tried to settle in France, and then France wouldn't give them. A visa to stay so they went to London then in, in England they were like now you have to go to France they went back to France then they kind of bounced back a bit yeah, back yeah. and forth and eventually they were given the right to stay in London and then when me and my twin brother were born here they got citizenship in it that's right and you were born uh, in London yeah 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 born so in London around here born around and raised in London yeah yeah just like down Paddington. around yeah 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 and so uh what was that like? Because obviously, I mean, was there a Polish community around where you nah, were from? Nah. It was, was it? Yeah. Nah, because like the big wave of Polish immigration, of modern po Polish immigration has happened in recent years. Much later, yeah, 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 yeah. And of course there was like a 
Polish community from around the Second World War period, but that was more in like areas like Ealing and stuff like that, innit? But um, no, nah, I didn't grow up in any kind of Polish community. Like my contact with Polish culture was basically my parents and like one or two friends that they had here in London mm -hmm. who were Polish as well. Um, but I think like, and the thing is, is like I speak English with my parents, although sometimes I mix up English and Polish with my dad, but with my mum, I just always speak English. I've always spoken English to her, innit? Like the strangest aspect of that, that thing of like being the child of immigrants. And it's one of the most interesting things because I've seen it with other people as well from all sorts of different cultures where their parents are immigrants is that we grow up in British culture. And although, of course, ethnically we're not British and we're from a completely different culture and everything, and Polish culture is very um, idiosyncratic, isn't it? It's like a very specific type of ethnicity with a very specific history. It's not like homogenous, like, for example, Western European culture in the general yeah, sense, yeah, for example, yeah, yeah. isn't it? And I've noticed that people, kids who grow up here, like who have immigrant parents, there's always this, there's a certain point where there's a clash of culture because the parents, they can be totally integrated into British society, but they didn't grow up. So they don't know certain of the nuances of like the experience of growing up in British culture in London as well. London, mm -hmm. which is especially distinctive, I think, from the rest of the UK, isn't it? Um, so it's like there's this certain point where you feel like, oh, they don't get it and, you know, they don't understand life because the life they understand is the life that they left behind. Mm -hmm. um, of course, it's not like that, innit? As when you get older, you realise it's not like that. But when you're going through a lot of kids, I think when they go through puberty, through their difficult teenage years and all that, there's a clash with, with their parents where their parents have values that are rooted in more traditional values or and you then kind of apply that that concern with traditional values to like oh you're just it's because you're you know all you know about is growing up in Poland for example and you don't know what it's like to grow up in London and red hair town mm -hmm. um, so do you remember that as, as part of your experience yeah definitely no yeah, I definitely yeah. like I'm speaking totally from experience because I yeah, definitely yeah. remember having this attitude towards my parents when I was a teenager of you don't get it you don't understand what yeah, it's yeah. like and I mean there are aspects that they didn't understand like there are definitely aspects and details of growing up in London they didn't get in it because they didn't grow up in London yeah. but it's part of that like you know the difficult years when you you have confrontations and issues with your parents isn't it? but interesting so you know you know you come your Polish background you're doing the ends around here most of your contemporaries are Afro-Caribbean background right yeah but I mean that's like it's that's just like a random occurrence isn't it that's mm. not for any it, that's not for any intentional reasons that's not for that's not because my parents were friends with all their parents or anything like mm. that it's like it's just the people that I made friends with I used to go youth club I used to MC a lot and yeah, yeah. that's who I made friends with at youth yeah. club and then living here in South Kilburn like yeah. it's got predominantly Afro-Caribbean uh, community like so those those just happen to be the people I made friends with and yeah. who I grew up with basically you know yeah. and I spent I mean yeah like I, I basically grew up with with all these friends of mine kind of we've we've basically become a lot of us like we're like family we're like brothers in it because we've known each other since we were like 13 14 like it's not even like we met when we were yeah, yeah. you know 20 years old or something or we yeah. met in uni in it it's like no these are all my friends like from from childhood from mm. teenagehood in it i wonder if that equipped you know that that fact of you know we talk about worlds within worlds do you think that equipped you with this other lens, this other filter maybe over what you were experiencing? I don't know. I don't know. Because the thing is, it's like, I don't know another type of reality. So I don't look at my life. I can't look at my life objectively, innit? I can't do that. Like a lot of people have pointed out to me how strange certain aspects of my life were or how mad or how unique or different or whatever. But... I can't do that about myself. I mean, I can if I try and, you know, compare myself to people, but I don't do that, and it? it's like, yeah, so yeah. I'm, just, I'm just me. And, like, of course, my twin brother is totally different to me, but, you know, we just exist in, in completely different circles, in different worlds. I've got well. to ask you, is your brother still playing the violin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My brother's an amazing <laughs> violinist, isn't it? Like, he's got, a, he's got an amazing career. Yeah, yeah, no, he's an amazing, he's an amazing musician, isn't it? And, but I think also, I think we're generally our inclination i think it comes maybe from our mother like that we're quite radical in our approach to things yeah. so like just with my writing where it's like i've decided to take a, a radical approach to to writing in it yeah. um 
just in terms of like wanting to not not just do a classical traditional novel or whatever and my twin brother has also quite a radical approach to music where he plays the violin and he trained classically but now he does a lot of experimental stuff he does a lot of stuff with electronic music mm -hmm. he produces stuff for films like um yeah so we've definitely got yeah. got that kind of inclination for not not towing the line in it. <laughs> yeah so i mean we've got plenty of context here for people who are going to be listening to this i mean I'm I'm two thirds of the way through one of the most exciting books I've read in a long time um, by Gabriel, and it's been long listed for the Booker, and it's been you know you know it's got it's got these elements that you don't find in like traditional mainstream media, and I I, I really want to see Gabriel sitting at that Booker Prize ceremony, man. But I don't know where it's going to happen, and I don't know if it should happen, and I don't know whether it'd be the best thing for Gabriel for it to happen right now or not. But tell me about the book, though. I mean, tell us, us about the book. I know a bit about the book, but where do you think it's coming from? I mean, uh, you know, it's extremely biographical, right? Yeah. But yet it's, and it's episodic, and it's punchy, and it's dark, but there are still flights of, of poetry and beautiful use of language in there, which I want to share with a listener as well. I want to read a couple of bits out and get you a listener. I want your perspective on it. But tell me about the book. Where it well, comes it's from. like, I mean, it's basically my memoir. It's basically my autobiography in it with, with enough kind of fictionalised aspects to to do two things. One is to protect myself and other people legally and the other aspect is to turn it into a, a pure work of literature basically rather than being non-fiction. Um, but the book itself is, I mean, A, it's like a, an immortalization of a time and place, not just in my life, but it's an immortalization of a world and a time that a lot of other people experienced. And then I believe that it extends beyond just, when I say a lot of other people experience, it extends beyond just people who are my friends. It extends beyond people who are just in the book. It extends to people who grew up in London in a certain context, who've experienced those realities in other areas. It extends to people in other cities across the UK who've experienced similar kind of worlds and realities. And it extends beyond as well to like Paris, New York even you know there are these similarities Toronto there are these similarities basically in the experiences of young men who grow up and who basically get drawn into like gang culture criminal culture and not just the, not just people who get drawn into it because of circumstances where it's like they're affected by poverty they're affected by social disadvantage they're uh, they're affected by negative influences in their area also young men who are drawn to this lifestyle because of their instinct because that's a huge thing that isn't discussed basically in the whole conversation about crime and young men in particular being involved in crime and gang culture. One of the biggest things that is never touched upon is what what is it that draws people towards it? There's there's a lot of circumstantial shit. Like if you grow up and both your parents are crackheads and they neglect you and you grow up surrounded by violence, then you're likely to be in that situation because you're affected terribly by the negative context of your growth in it like the way you understand the world around you is already affected by fucked up experiences so can i swear of course yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah we don't yeah. we don't believe <laughs> right. cool so like yeah it's already it's already affected by fucked up experiences in it and that's why your life will just continue across that pattern and there's a whole nother group of young men who don't like myself as well who don't come from some mad fucked up background we didn't grow up with crazy disadvantages and like everything was stacked against us but we had the instinct and this instinct within us was like, fuck the law, fuck conforming, fuck what society expects of us. In it. I'm doing me, I'm following my instinct. And I never, I never intellectualized it until I was in uni and I started reading Nietzsche. And I started reading Nietzschean philosophy about man's instinct for power. And there's this amazing quote um, that I actually put in the book for the start of the chapter, which is um, it, from the genealogy of morality, which is it is the meaning of all culture to breed a tame and civilized animal out of the beast of prey, man. And that line, when I, I remember when I read that and being like, oh, Ooh. I get it. Yeah. I get myself. I get some of my friends, like, as in, I get what this is about, innit? Like, this is, this is what it's yeah, about, yeah, innit? Yeah. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. What do you think of the mainstreaming of, say, like, like, grime, like the block culture, like grime through grime and the, the, the acceptance of, of the mainstream of grime well, music? What, and, you know, I'm going to talk about Top Boy and, and yeah, all yeah, these yeah, other yeah, yeah. What do you think of that? How, well, what, I think, like, where does your work sit in relation to that? Do you so think? I think, so what I would say in relation to, like, UK culture in, in terms of music and, and just culture in general, it's like... It, it sits among that. So, like, for example, we've got, you know, we've got great music culture now, especially with UK drill and UK rap, and grime has now become mainstream. And I remember because we all used to MC back in the day, you know, we used to go pirate radio to, like, Lalo FM and Lush FM and these other pirate radio stations, and grime used to be mad underground. But that was the thing. Back in the day, only mandem in the hood, I'm talking, like, you know, 14 years ago or whatever, or 10 years ago and shit, only mandem in the hood were, like, doing grime in it, basically, or 15 years ago and more in it. Only mandem in the hood were doing grime in it. It was just hood music, basically. It was from the ends, like, it came with a certain energy, a certain expression. Unfortunately, at that time, the police did this thing where they, like, basically stopped, they'd block grime from being in, featured in West End clubs, in it. So a lot of artists had mad struggles back in the day, and... There's a lot of talent out there that was incredible that never made it because it wasn't the right time. The mainstream hadn't accepted it. And now the mainstream's finally gotten onto it and accepted it as part of British culture. It's a unique expression. Like we're not copying the Americans, we're doing our own thing in it. And so now it's like become popular and it's accepted and everything, which is great. It's really good for the culture because it should be. Because we've had a strong artistic expression from from time in it, but we are we've always had this thing in like I guess the powers that be are like very wary and very sceptical and very scared of of British youth culture in it whereas the Americans can do whatever they want they can rap about guns and selling crack and you know they'll play it on Kiss FM or whatever in it like so yeah so it's really good that that we've got our own musical culture and we've got our own fashion culture as well which a lot of other countries and a lot of other youth cultures around the world are copying and everything which is banging that's the way it should be in it I would say with my book, I would definitely place it in there that it's like, so a, a kid right now who, or, or someone who likes listening to, you know, UK drill music, someone who likes watching the film Top, um, Blue Story or likes watching the TV series Top Boy or whatever, they can also get that same feeling of being immersed in a world which they would recognise, right, from my, my novel, innit? And I think uniquely my, my book can be placed not just in terms of a work of literature but a work of literature that sits within that culture and sits within there in it um so tell me a bit about how you actually came to draw it all together into a book form because as i say i'm fascinated by the, the publishing story you know how, how, you know that you've so, got it out because it's tough to get cut through the noise right? yeah no no it's mad difficult and so what i had is i had when i decided to write i, I wrote it in, at the end of 2017 i was living here in south kilburn and Basically, I'd moved, it's funny because it's like, I'd stopped living in South Kilburn for quite a few years. I'd been living at one point in Brixton and stuff. And then I basically moved back into South Kilburn, like literally back into my old room that I'd lived in when I was 17, 18, 19 years old and that, yeah. And 
it's it was like moving back in triggered this thing of like now is the time to write this book you know and i had this stack i mean like a huge pile of handwritten notes papers scraps of of ripped out exercise books from uni old exercise books with little incidents written down probation reports with bare writing on the back of them like i had even old phones with, which i'd managed to keep and like they had notes on them and stuff and i took all this material from that time and sat down and started constructing or reconstructing that part of my life basically like piecing it back together and then writing it all down and turning it into a novel um so i did that um I, I write everything by hand so like i can show you like as in my well i don't actually know i don't have my my latest book here so it's in my bedroom but anyway i write everything literally by hand like i write pen on paper the entire book was written pen on paper first it was about now it's about a hundred and ten thousand words long initially it was about a hundred and fifty thousand words yeah then I sat down after I'd written it in 2018 and I spent about five months typing it up. Typing it yeah, up, which yeah, was yeah. the worst bit because it was long. It was like boring to me. It was like, although on the other hand, it helps my editorial process because what ends up happening is I do my first edit while I'm typing it up. Like, yeah, yeah. And then basically I started sending it out to, to agents. And what I did was it's like, it's mad because some people have asked me like, yeah, so how do you get an agent? How do you? And I was like, right, you go on Google and you type how to yeah. get a literally agent in it. Like, no, literally, it's like, no one told me how to no. do it. Like, I, I was you just didn't like, connect. let me, no, nah, I had no connects. Like, I just looked at, looked it up basically in it and was like, this is how to do it. How do you, I have to write a covering letter. How do you write a Google? How do you write a covering letter? Wrote a covering letter, wrote a synopsis, like, and started sending it out to agents in it. And I got this mad, like, positive response from agents. And I think it's because, well, what they would say is that a lot of agents said that they'd never read anything like this in it, and they'd yeah. never had anything like this sent to them. And I think, I hope that, I think the book, the book, a long list kind of validates this this perspective. Yeah, that. It wasn't just oh it's so shocking and so visceral and, and like this is from from that world in it. It wasn't just that. It was also that they recognised some kind of literary skill in there. So it's the combination of literary uh, a literary approach to telling mm -hmm. the story and the realism of yeah. it and everything. I say well I'm no literary critic you know but I've read a lot you know I've I've, I've been a hack for twenty five thirty years and I made a living from writing right and I've brought, written a bit of fiction and tried to write fiction, I know how difficult it is. But there's this energy to it that I feel like is, is pushes it into literature. And, yeah. you know, you take the subject matter out of the game, there are moments in there, you know, I'm, you know, I, I'm not off the top of my head, I, I'm, I'm immersed in this world, by the way, literally, I'm, I'm still reading it now, right? So I remember the seat, um, and this made me think, cause I've lost my fucking tooth at the moment. <laughs> when you talk about, start talking about, um, uh, the instinct of young men around a tutorial at uni. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and there's yeah. that there's that moment where the, the sun coming in through the window glints off off, off the ice in the Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and like there are these and, little moments that you bring in that that like some some of it actually when you and you got to talk about the language as well, right? The language that you use has never been captured in my. I don't think it's ever been captured in a book form, not that I've seen or read, or even on a on a in a in a, in a an article or anything. Mm -hmm. Where that 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 voice of the street that we're used to now, I'm used to. It. I understand it. I mean, I've got eighteen year old, mm. sixteen year old boys that grew up that 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 know that they're from Homerton, right? We moved to the country, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so they I can recognise the language, but it is a different language. Mm. You put it together, and it reminds me of fucking James Joyce's the bits of it in there. Yeah, that's bang, really, bang. you know, it really yeah. does. And I and I don't want to sit here just being a fanboy, but it's like it's so exciting to me that someone's managed to capture that, and I'm excited that your man. In the fucking the, the the editor has kept that energy in it and then tried to edit edit out. What was the editorial process once you submitted it and it was picked up? Yeah, so when I when I basically chose because I had several publishers who were interested and I went for Fourth Estate in the end and my editor there she's called Helen Garnons Williams, amazing editor. And when I worked with her, I mean it was it was a, a perfect perfect collaborative experience I never had any issues with any of her suggestions like the only funny enough the only issues I ever had editorially when I was finally you know editing the book for the final version was that I didn't want to cut a lot of stuff that there was way more there was a good like I'd say like a good 30 to 40 thousand words that got cut and 
I guess, you know, it was important and I totally understood why she wanted me to cut it in it because she was never, none of the cutting was censorious or like, oh, you can't have that in there. It was more just along the lines of, we just need to tighten the book. Like, we just need to tighten it up in it. And because there is a certain degree to that lifestyle, that world and that reality that I lived in is ultimately mad, intense and constant. So it's not that like, it's not like a a perfect novel structure where you have some dramatic incidents, characters are established and it builds up to a peak violent moment and then there's a, a you know, it crescendos to a peak violent moment and then it kind of Redemption. builds to a resolution, yeah, a redemptive yeah. moment. Real life isn't like that. And also when people are living in that gang culture, it's like there's this line that I write um, in the book where I say violence, I mean, it's not exactly this, but basically where these incidents of violence that some people see flashes of like in the newspaper or you might see a sign in the street which says there was a shooting and you know you walk down the street and you're like right that's mad like those incidents actually punctuate the reality that people live in so violence is like you know a regular a regular aspect of existence and you know like all, all those other things that I described so I think in the editorial process it was it was a matter of great editing basically of like if you keep having too many of these incidents or you have too much of this intensity it detracts from some of the other more significant events so we just need to cut cut the words down yeah. but editorially it was a brilliant process i really enjoyed working with her um i think she's very insightful and she i, th I mean the thing is she got it she got it and that's what was amazing is that everyone my agent my my publicist, the people who I've worked with in Fourth Estate, like they all get it in it. It's like mm. they might not be from that world, but they they get what I'm doing. Yeah. They get the way that I'm opening a window basically onto yeah. this world that that no one's done before in that same way. And the only the only people really who open a window onto that world, I guess, are like you know UK drill rappers or whatever and stuff. And that's a whole different. That's a completely different art form and medium in it. You can't get yeah. immersed in it so heavily or. Um, it's more expressive to some yeah. extent rather than immersive, isn't it? So I suppose like so you've got this you've got this incredible first novel, you've got a two book deal, I believe. Yeah. Uh, you've got book along listed, which I'm stoked for you because it makes it easy sell next one, right? You know, it, <laughs> hopefully yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, and I and I mentioned you this before, you know, it's, it's we, we, for a writer like yourself with this like literary energy, are you prepared for the criticisms that bound to come your way about the world that you, you evoke and the mainstreaming of that kind of, and, and the offense as we talked about before, it's gonna be a lot of, it's gonna be very difficult for people who who aren't used to that world or, or kind of deny its existence to yeah. actually accept that world within yeah. the, 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 the salons of polite yeah. society on Radio 4. Or on, you yeah, know, I mean the book is. Shows, yeah, I mean the book you know? is the book's confrontational, isn't it? Like mm. the book is definitely confrontational because it's confronting people with reality, and it's like it's. I think also, like I mean, I'm sure somebody might criticize me and say that it's glamorizing violence, but it's not glam glamorizing violence at all. It's not glamorizing that world at all. It's like that world is is portraying that world in terms of how difficult it is, how traumatic it is as well, how damaging it is, not just for the people in that world, but for people on the periphery in it it's like just it's just a very damaging type of experience in it and i think people i mean in terms of being ready because you said you know am i ready for that it's like uh, i'm ready in it as in like i've decided to write this and to and to tell this truth and to tell this reality so it's like i wouldn't have done that if i wasn't ready for some kind of confrontation over it um i think as well they're not ready for me in it like as in they're not ready for the fact that it's like i'm not trying to I'm not trying to promote violence, I'm not trying to glamorise it and I can totally intellectually explain the the ways in which these things happen, in which my life ended up going into that way and uh, in that direction and everything. Um, I mean, you know, there's always going to be critics, isn't it? Like, there's always going to be pe people who, and by critics, I mean people who are critical of any kind of artistic expression or artistic creation. Um, I just hope that you know there are enough people who who see beyond just how difficult and challenging a lot of the subject is and they see a the kind of value of of 
being exposed to that reality and to understanding that there's more of it. Because basically, you know, like, I mean, just, just in a kind of simplistic way, you know, it's like, so yesterday there was, well, early this morning, there was a shooting and this guy got killed in South Kildon down, just down the road, innit? Like, all you're going to read is a few lines in the newspaper about how this person was discovered in the street with a gunshot wound, taken to hospital and he died. That's all you're going to read, innit? You're not going to read and, and ever know about the events that built up to that. You're not going to know about his life, his interests, his personal feelings as well. Feelings, because it's like... It's like, what, do you not think gang members feel love, feel loss, feel longing, feel hope, feel, like, despair? Like, yeah, they feel it, innit? Like, you know, just like every other human being, innit? There's very few humans on this on, on this world who are, like, complete psychopaths and completely callous, innit? And there's a difference between total psychopaths and people who, who do what I call, like, wickedness, who are on wickedness, but it's, like, because it's partly a survival mechanism, partly that dog-eat-dog you know, hierarchical thing of like, you know, you're trying to climb a ladder in it and you realise that the, the only way to, to climb the ladder is to try and be more ruthless than the next man in it. But it's not like that world and those experiences are devoid of like all the complexity of human emotions that other human beings have in it. So people read these little things in the news in it, but they don't know what happened before. And I don't just mean either in terms of leading up to that moment and to that tragedy in it. I also mean just they don't know about like his friends, his interactions, the family. They don't know what's gonna happen after, like all the repercussions, all the, all the, you know, complexity of things that happen and how it affects loads of different people's lives. In it, so all we're really exposed to is just a couple of lines in a newspaper about some violence. It's shocking. It's terrible. Maybe if it's a big, high-profile thing, we might read about a trial of somebody involved in it later. But that's it. Mm. You like you don't get you don't get immersed into that world. You don't see it and people need to also realise like there's a this is now I'm slightly branching off onto the next thing but I think it's important to mention this there's an unhealthy thing and there has been in in the media for a long time of like black on black crime this term black on black crime isn't it? and that's bullshit like it's bullshit it's like there's when when a white person kills a white person, it doesn't get re reported as white on white crime, right? Yeah, this is just one of those labels that's created that demonizes people and that creates a whole prejudice within society against a group of people based on the language that the media decides to use. And way before, for example, Afro Caribbean immigration to the UK, in it, there's been gangs in it. There were gangs like a hundred years ago. Victorian London was fucking greasy in it. In fact. I reckon Victorian London was probably more dangerous, like, than contemporary London right now, innit? It's like, do you know what I mean, innit? Like, yeah, like, the East End was just, like, you know, going there, like, in Victorian times would be, like, you're, you're playing games with your life, innit? You know them ones? So it's like, there's this unhealthy, there's been this unhealthy attitude in the media, and I think it's quite important. Of course, I'm the, the son of immigrants and stuff, so, you know, they can frame me as, like, oh, look at, you know these people who come from immigrant backgrounds involved in crime, I'm sure they can find all sorts of ways to demonise me if they want to, innit? And, yeah. and, you know, turn me into part of that narrative. But well, it's mate, important you're, you're to, the Daily Mail's worst nightmare. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. But it's important to, it's important to recognise that white boys are just as involved in this shit as anyone else. And, like, you know, I wrote, like, in, in my book, there's a lot of Afro-Caribbean characters because those are my friends, innit? Those are my family, those are my brothers, those are the people I grew up with, innit? Those are my sisters as well, like, you get me? Like Uncle T, who's like like a dad to me basically, innit? And his daughters are like sisters to me, and these are all my family, innit? If I was in Glasgow though, I'd be rolling with a whole bag of Glaswegian boys, innit? And I'd like probably sp speak with a Scottish accent and shit, innit? So it's like it's just about where you're placed. It's just about where you find yourself mm. in life that that you, that your context is found and everything. But the narrative in the media that that's always been portrayed in particular that thing like which I hate of black on black crime it's bullshit it's a myth in it it's a myth mm -hmm. it's just it's just the basically racist bigoted kind of demonization in it mm -hmm. and it's created a false narrative which which people buy into in it and like yeah. yeah yeah so like I mean really I mean that 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 the question I was asking there about ready for it it's like it there's a way in which you know I mean, you're 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 at this point now where you're, you're as a as a writer, all, all the bases are loaded, right? Um, you've put yourself out there and, and written something very very visceral, very very truth, very truthful and very biographical. It's a precarious thing that you've done. You stuck your neck above yeah. the parapet as an artist, yeah. and that's what art is, right? Yeah. So what I was trying to get at is like, oh, you know, 
Is there anything that can knock that off? Because you've seen some times, right? You know, you, you know, you you've suffered the slings and arrows, man. You you you've seen the loss. Yeah. You've experienced the loss. You've been incarcerated. You got out. You've gone back in again. You've seen it happens with your your brothers and sisters as well. Um. I think what I'm trying—I don't know what the question I'm asking really. I, I think I'm saying, when you so when you when you sat down to delve back into that yeah. world, did you have to kind of was it like dragging up old things, or was it always just there? And was that a traumatic thing for you? Or yeah. Was it? So it was like it's interesting because it's like it was a mixture of like catharsis, of like me getting a lot of shit off my chest, and almost in the process of writing it I was le- I was finally it was like the final step of leaving that world behind was to write about those experiences yeah. in it so in that sense it was cathartic uh, but it was also it was upsetting at times to relive certain moments and like especially to immerse myself back into those memories and especially especially actually writing about how I affected other people like writing about mm. how I and and considering now like after all this time has passed, how I must have affected other people's lives in it and how badly I must have affected people's mm-hmm. lives in it. It's like, that was difficult to me, in it? Because it was a confrontation with a lot of feelings, not just of regret, because I think regret is too simplistic. And to some extent, it's like, I've got to be careful with how I put this here, but it's like, to some extent, I don't feel regret. And what I mean by that is not, I don't regret having done bad things. I mean, I don't feel regret in the sense of, I am the person who I am today because of those experiences. I've I've only got one life, you know, not to be cliched, but it's not a dress rehearsal. I can't press the rewind button. This is how it is. This is what happened. This is just how it was, isn't it? But writing about it, reading and, and really considering, like, you know, reading back my own writing and really considering how badly I must have affected a lot of people, family, friends, victims, etc. It's like, that was... You know, that was very difficult for me, as in it was upsetting, um, remembering as well some of the kind of the, the kind of tragic waste of life. Because also that's the other thing is this lifestyle, there's a certain point where you realise unless you become a millionaire, which is incredibly rare, isn't it? Like to get mad rich and, and to escape, to win what we call winning, in it, So you don't end up with a long prison sentence and you end up wealthy and everything in it and and you end up able to and also you end up able to walk away from it and build a new life for yourself that's incredibly rare isn't it and to kind of think and consider the the waste the waste of of life the waste of lives in general the waste of time in it like it was difficult yeah it was it was mad difficult and reliving you know traumatic incidents yeah. it was difficult but necessary because to tell the truth you have to dig into those yeah. in, into those memories in it and you have to bring them back and you have to be real about them so that also means displaying vulnerability that for example a lot of my friends are going to read the book and a lot of moments of my personal vulnerability which are internalised which are kind of like interior monologues they're going to read it and they're going to be like raw because on the exterior you can come across as a callous person you can come across as detached you can come across as unempathetic and, and just like you know you're just you're just basically on a mad ride and you don't know when you're going to crash in it mm. but actually internally there's a, there's a lot of thoughts and feelings that people experience in it and mm. writing about that was like there were moments when I was like oh I kind of don't want to write this in it and but it's necessary I have to because yeah. if I don't I'm not telling the truth and I guess that process is I'm, I'm picking up as you're speaking it's sort of a healing process a catharsis and a healing thing going on it's interesting isn't it? because once you've got a book out there in the world it ain't yours anymore, right? It's the world's. Yeah. It becomes an object, an yeah. artifact, a crystallisation, I think you said, of, of a time and a place and lives and feelings and hurt. And then, do you think there is that function in it then? Is it, is it can it be this healing thing? For, for groups of people, will people look at it and go, fuck, you know what you're saying? That, that, that has helped me understand what was going on there? Yeah, I think so. I hope so. I hope so. I'd like to think so, innit? I mean... I find it very difficult to I find it very difficult to talk about my writing in terms of what the power of my writing is because that's for other people to say that I find it very difficult to almost talk well of my writing like like when I, I had an extract published not long ago um and I read it and I start or I started reading it and I was like eh, it's all right 
could be better. We could have written it better. It's not that great. Like, as in, and that's not because, that's not a feeling because I feel that way or react to it because I then seek reassurance from other people, from other channels. Like, yeah. nah, you've written something banging. It's like, nah, it's just like a personal artistic thing of like, yeah, it's okay. Could be better. You know, I need to write something else now that's going to be even better, that's going to be even more yeah. powerful. I need to kind of keep seeking the highest possible like attainment of i guess art, not artistic perfection because perfection is not really part of art but more like basically just tr keep trying to seek something that is like universal that you know it's like just because the world and the reality displayed in my book is a, a reality that a lot of people don't know about that a lot of people don't have access to that a lot of people haven't lived doesn't mean that there isn't a universality to what I'm writing about in terms of people understanding mm. a human, a human experience. Yeah. Like, so I don't know. I mean, it's like, yeah, I can't really talk about my writing yeah. in, in that sense. It's like, yeah, hopefully it will impact people. And I want, yeah. I want it to hit people in the chest, innit? That's what I want it to do. Yeah. We're going to do that, I reckon. I remember <laughs> just, just to finish that, that, that little thing, I remember that sequence where you, uh, you talk about can't remember the context but you talk about um what a waste of fucking time all those anti anti knife campaigns yeah, yeah. and anti-gun crimes it's like can you see yourself doing that thing of going into a school and saying and reading something and saying look yeah yeah definitely can you see yourself getting involved definitely. in that or is that no so i would definitely i would definitely and could definitely see myself talking to young people and you know trying to trying to inspire them or trying to you know, to steer away from that lifestyle and from the temptations and from the negative influences. Because also the other thing is a lot of kids who get into that lifestyle, they're victims of these influences, innit? And then later they get turned into, by these influences and experiences, they get turned into someone who's fully immersed in that life. But every single gangster, criminal, whatever, at some point was a child who didn't know that reality, who wasn't aspiring to that, innit? You're not yeah. born like that, yeah. innit? You get me? Like, so everyone at some point is affected by environments, by influences, negative influences, and then they can either be drawn to it or they can steer away from it. I would definitely um, look to kind of helping people and everything and inspiring them, but I think my, my, my angle would be more about inspiring them just to do something with their lives, because that's what's important is to realise that you need to do something with your life. Like everyone has has an ability within them everyone has a certain power of being able to shape their future to some extent like and to take charge of of their life mm -hmm. and do something in terms of knife crime just just to relate it back to that specific point of when i was saying how you know the anti-knife crime campaigns are pointless and, and whatever it's like what i mean by that is this when you get a politician on tv who says that he spent like 20 million pounds on putting posters up at bus stops or on yeah, on walls that are like, you know, drop the knives, save lives and shit like that. It's not going to do fuck all difference. The man them who pick up knives and want to go and kill will carry on doing it. The killers will just laugh at that and just be like, huh, whatever. Like, killers won't even watch that. They won't even see it. They won't even take notice of it. It's like, it's very performative. It's very symbolic. Getting also ex-criminals or, or rappers to like be part of that. It's very performative. It's almost... Almost, I wouldn't say totally, because there's also some very positive things that have come out of things like that. But it's almost patronising to young people to think that, you know, you just need to put some posters up around that, that rhymes knives with lives. And then it's like, you know, all the kids are going to be like, yeah, cool, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be involved with that because you don't know what environments they live in. You don't, you don't know what influences they're surrounded by. Mm. You don't know, like, you know, some people start carrying knives out of pure fear. And it's like they don't want to stab anyone, but they're seeing these things happening around them. They're seeing the power of people who use violence as a language in it mm. to communicate and to get where they want to. And they see that and, they, and it frightens them. And they think the only way I can protect myself is to try and be like that as well. Otherwise, I'll just get swallowed up by this world mm. and I won't survive it and I'll be a victim in it. And no one wants to be a victim. No one wants to be powerless in it. Yeah. Right? So, so what it's next? Much more complicated. What yeah. next? You got two book deal. Yeah, two book deal. So, <laughs> at the moment, I'm working. So I'm actually working on two novels at the moment. I'm working on one novel that's like, a, a, it's basically exploring. I don't want to, no spoilers in it. So it's like, <laughs> I'm just gonna give a brief thing in it. Like basically, I'm working on a novel that's 
examining transgenerational trauma. So like the idea that basically, you know, children can inherit uh, the traumas of their parents and then by extension, ancestral traumas in it, depending mm. on which culture you're from and everything in it. And Poland in particular, like, because it's, it's also semi-autobiographical, Poland is a, a deeply traumatized country, not just by the Second World War, but by hundreds of years of occupation, of colonization by Russia, by the Austro-Hungarian Empire, by Prussia and everything like going way back into history in it and people who come from those countries and from those experiences who have that you know who where whose ancestors experience things I genuinely believe have an amount of trauma encoded in their DNA encoded in their psyche that they inherit and I think it's a fascinating thing to examine basically in terms of how that affects relationships between families and the way people relate to their own history yeah, and yeah. to their sense of the world around them and the other book I'm working on is a book that's basically like set in a similar context um, to, to the first book of like, you know, gang culture in London. But it's basically a, a, a narrative just about the fear of the fears that people experience of inner city life. And by fears, I don't just mean simplistic fears like, oh, people are scared of gangs and crime. I mean, the fears of like the horror of like polluted air, the horror of constant pressure of bills and and these like influences that are around us that you know you have to go to work and you have to earn a salary and you have to pay your rent and you're also surrounded by like people that you know um, celebrity culture that makes you feel that if you're not aspirational enough or you know you don't buy these clothes or you don't wear this or whatever then you're not doing well enough and like mm. so it's about that and then halfway through the novel it turns into an actual supernatural yeah. horror that kind of reflects the the fear of people around yeah. so I'm, I'm working on those I'm working on some short stories like I'm working on a film script as well, yeah. so yeah. yeah so I'm not very busy. <laughs> <laughs> you still writing by hand? Yeah, 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 yeah of course. Time. I can only write by hand. No, no, I'm never gonna. I'm never. I've got my laptop in it. Like you I'm better get. You have to get someone else to type it up for you now. Though, no right? one can do my, my <laughs> manuscripts are so complicated. Like there's arrows all over the place. Like you know, ideas suddenly occur to me after I've finished writing a certain piece. An idea will occur to me when I'm about to go to sleep, and then I'll write it in the margin, and I'll you know do a red arrow so I remember <laughs> and asterisks and everything all over the place. And that language, I think there's you managed to capture that language, whatever. I don't know what you call it. I mean, will anyone ever give it a name? Because it is like a different language, you know. Some of those, you know, I thought I knew it, and I was hitting up Urban Dictionary every now and then. I got, I can't lie. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, to be able to capture that, I mean. It is another language, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Written, it's written in, it's written in this kind of. It's London. It's, it's a vernacular. It's London, but it's, it's also London universal talk. as well. Yeah, I mean, it's London talk. I mean, there's influences of so many different cultures within that language, isn't it? But that's because London is a multicultural, cosmopolitan city. That's like not just internally cosmopolitan and multicultural, but also externally, as in it's open to influences from other countries and music art culture and everything in it that that comes with that so it's just this unique it's this unique language that we have in london and and by extension i guess a lot of other cities in england have adopted it in, in certain ways so i'm going to wrap it up now i always ask this question in these in these podcasts like what one book one film one piece of art that you carry around with you and that feeds your creativity. Well, that feeds my creativity. So, from a from a literary perspective, what about music? Oh yeah, music yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah cool. cool. Well, that can be <laughs> the work yeah. of art, whatever. Yeah, no. So, so like um, from a literary perspective, um, I was the first person I'd have to go for in terms of having had a huge impact on me as a writer as Isaac Babel. Um, he's a Ukrainian, well, actually Russian, Russian Jewish writer. And he wrote, in particular, the Odessa stories and Red Cavalry stories that in mad powerful, completely changed, like, almost changed my life in terms of when I read it. And um, it had a huge impact on me in terms of knowing that it's like, yep, I can write about the savagery of the world with beauty as well, in it. Like, and he's a phenomenal writer. And the way he kind of immortalized the world of, of old Odessa and these Jewish gangsters in Odessa and then also the Red Cavalry stories, which is about the Red Army invading Poland. Um, and all of that so that, that was a huge impact on me but also from a literary perspective the other major influence on me was Nas the, the Queensbridge rapper in it like listening to his albums especially Illmatic and it was written and then also the others like I Am and Nostradamus but especially it was written I would say that album 
huge impact on me because he's such a storyteller and he's a poet and it's like it is literature in its own right it has a huge literary value and that had a massive impact on me in terms of we had nose on the cover right. back in the day yeah 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 yeah, yeah 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 so that yeah that's bang that's like yeah, he's amazing, isn't it? He's phenomenal. So many people yeah. reference Nas, man. Yeah, and as a writer... Isaac Bible right. and Nas, that's a... Yeah, that's Isaac Bible and Nas. That's, yeah, that's, that's a killer juxtaposition. For real, for real, for real. <laughs> film, what film would I... Oh, I don't know, like, that's difficult because there's so many amazing films, isn't it? It's like, don't say Tony Montana, man. No, 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 Everyone's got a Scarface poster on the wall, isn't it? No, 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 no. Every time you go for a draw, there's Tony up on the wall. Yeah, and also the dumb thing about that as well, it's like everyone watches Scarface and then it's like, yeah, I want to be that. It's like, did you not see the ending of something? Like, did you not see how it ends? Or everyone thinks, yeah, I'm not going to do that as long as I don't dip my face in a plate of cocaine and kill my best friend, I won't, you know, it won't end badly. But no, film-wise... I would say, do you know what, like, there's so many, like, yeah. wonderful films that I've watched and I'm a huge film fan as well, innit? Um, there's one I want to mention, a French film, but I don't really want to mention it because I think it would be too cliched in the context of, of what my book is about. But Old Boy by yeah. um, Park Chan-wook, yeah, yeah. like, is a fucking masterpiece, like, and I think it was a violation that the Americans were like, we're going to do an American remake. It's like, fuck that. Like, why can't you just watch an amazing Korean film with yeah. subtitles and just like, <laughs> you know, yeah. and that is art. I mean, I think Old Boy was a work yeah, of art. Yeah. It's like one of the highest pinnacles of cinema yeah. and also deeply disturbing and tragic and poignant and, mm. and just an amazing, amazing work of art. And not, not just in terms of also the other thing about it, that's in a truly amazing film is quite beyond the acting beyond the story beyond the script the way in which like the set pieces were designed and like the attention to detail of like colors and lighting and how that affects the sense of the mood of the scene mm. i think park chan wook is uh, an inc- like one yeah. of the top top directors in the world right, like right. about that and art i mean i don't know art like i, I love caravaggio in it i think he's banging and like he was he was the outlaw as well in it and, <laughs> and i love you know scorsese used used caravaggio paintings to influence his own lighting and films so it's like yeah caravaggio is is um, a true master of painting so yeah. I, I love his work and music just to quickly add to you know not just nas but music in terms of the biggest the, the people who i listen to the most right now by far is Griselda. I don't know if you've heard of Griselda. Mm-hmm. So Griselda is this group from Buffalo, New York, West Side Gun, started by West Side Gun, uh, Conway and Benny the Butcher, in it, and they're just amazing. They're like complete non-conformists within the rap game. They evoke this world of like the the ultimate like gangster glamour, but also the gritty reality of it. Mm-hmm. They evoke it in like it's like when you listen to their music, it's like you're watching a film and then as you listen to more and more of the music, the film is sucking you into that world until you almost feel like you're immersed in it and it's just surrounding you completely. So bad. Griselda is like my top playlist. Like, yeah, shout Check out Griselda, out. innit? Like, yo, Check it out. Holla at me. Well, thanks, man. You know, I'm gonna, I know I'm going to leave I'm gonna leave your company this afternoon with shit loads of questions. I haven't even finished the... Finished the uh, the thing, but um, I'll check you out later. And uh, yeah, man, yeah, 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 but yeah. it's brilliant, brilliant, great, great conversation. No, man. thank you, thank you. Thanks for listening to Joining the Dots. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your fix, and to pick up Gabriel's book, Who They Was, from wherever you get your daily drop of truth.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.